All right, so we are here for the first episode of our new podcast series here from the Villanova English Department, and we'll be tracing the lines of the graduate course on literary theory and investigating a different area of theory in each episode. So I'm talking with the uh, chair of the department, Heather Hicks, um, today about postmodernism, which is a phrase I've heard a lot and have probably even said sometimes without necessarily knowing in a clear sense directly what it is. So I'm glad to be talking about that with you today. We'll just start real simple. In a, um, in a nutshell, what, what is modernism and how does postmodernism relate to it? In terms of modernism, is postmodernism its opposite, its continuation, or something else altogether? Well, you've already asked the question that's the subject of debate. Um, sometimes people think that the post in postmodernism means it's a, an extenu, sort of an extension of modernism. And it, in other cases, um, some critics argue that it really does mean a break. In fact, it, it probably means both. Um, modernism is often understood as a cultural movement that began arguably sometime around 1890 with a high period between, say, 1920 and 1945 that involved all kinds of radical new forms of expression. Um, in literature, you would see things like stream of consciousness, um, really profound fragmentation of narrative. Um, it often had a kind of an elitist impulse to it. It often was um, highly elusive material in the sense of it alluded to all kinds of classical traditions. So if you read like a classic like T.S. Eliot's uh, The Wasteland, it's full of references to classical literature, um, Latin, etc. cetera. Um, so it had this kind of whole set of characteristics that um, I know one of my colleagues will be elaborating on in another podcast in the near future. Postmodernism is usually dated to 1945, and that's not a coincidence. It's kind of keyed to the end of World War II. Um, and it's understood in many cases as a reaction against modernism in that it tends to embrace popular cultural forms while modernism tended to be somewhat elitist. Um, and in some ways, it's an extension of modernism, especially, uh, some argue, because it continues the sort of fragmentation um, that you see in modernist forms. So often the forms are similar, uh, but the spirit behind it is different. And a very concise way of putting that is that in a lot of cases, the modernists recoiled from the fragmentation that they were articulating. They were nostalgic for something unified, whereas the postmodernists are also uh, depicting fragmentation, but they are in many cases embracing it, embracing the minutia of difference instead of a longing for a moment when things seemed more organized. Is it fair to say that they're doing similar things but for different reasons or with different understandings of what they're doing? Yeah, I mean again it's it's always going to be dangerous to generalize about 
postmodern thought, um, since there are a lot of different sides. It's also dangerous to generalize about modernism, um, even at the level of its elitism. You know, some would some would debate that that position, but uh, in general, postmodernism has been characterized. One of the most famous uh, definitions of it is. Uh, a sort of resistance to meta narrative, a resistance to what are called grand narratives, meaning giant organizing, totalizing theories that uh, societies have tended to subscribe to, like progress, truth, science, right? Um, uh, Jean Francois Leotard is the person associated with that idea of meta narrative and micro narrative, and his general position is that postmodernists disavow these giant systems of thought, these giant narratives, and in, in their place, they invest in small micro-narratives that are more local, that are more specific, that are more inclusive, essentially, right? And that's where that tension between the elite and the more open and inclusive impulse is, is kind of identifiable. Okay. So... Speaking of uh, micro-narratives, my micro-narrative with this was that you gave me an article to look at by um, Ihab Hassan, and I hope I'm saying that something close to correctly. And yeah. he um, had these 11, he called them definiens, mm -hmm. um, of the term postmodern. And so we'll kind of run through those in an attempt to grapple with this hazy thing. So he begins with what he calls indeterminacy. Is he saying that postmodern thinkers are uncertain about everything, or are there certain key large things that they're uncertain about? Oh, gosh. I would say to some degree he's saying they're uncertain about everything, um, that there is a whole impulse after 1945 toward the acceptance that we can't know everything, that there is no uniform system of knowledge that we can ever arrive at. Again, a lot of that is very at odds with uh, certain kind of traditions in European philosophy and um, continental philosophy. And he's, he's citing the various ways that we see that in science, for example, with uncertainty principles. And more generally, another way of thinking about this is that, you know, that turning point of 1945 is a moment where we see are, are sort of confronted with global culture more than ever before. And there's simply irreconcilable system of so social belief um, across the globe, for example, that you simply can't resolve, right, into some overarching understanding where everyone will subscribe to the same point of view. And whether these are kind of religious beliefs or ideas about um, how humans should interact in certain ways, um, you know, the indeterminacy is that there's no higher authority that we can turn to in some sense uh, to to know um, the truth with a capital T. Right? So it's not it's not just the big things. But the big things trickle down into the little things, uh, and there's just no no solid ground. And that that leads us nicely into the second definition, which is fragmentation. There's this notion that things are being 
broken up, that, that you have these irreconcilable different experiences. So is this all about a reaction against um, movements that try to have a big idea, whether that be a religious movement or some of the big movements that arose, say, during the Cold War, during World War II, like fascism, communism? Is postmodernism about not doing that, or is there, is there something else at play as well? Yeah, I mean, one of the nice things about the Hassan article is, is he's one of the few critics that you can immediately uh, see as talking specifically about literature, which is the area that, you know, I'm, I'm interested in. Um, and is, can you hear that dog, by the way? <laughs> I, I can, and, and you might at some point hear a baby, but we'll, <laughs> okay. we'll soldier on. We'll decide if you need to edit that out. Okay, so, um, right, right. So, and I mean, to some degree that extends, what he's saying does very much extend into other cultural arenas. Um, but I wanted to just talk for a second about just straight up fragmentation in literature, right? Where you do see, and this is a classic case of the modern and the postmodern resembling each other. Uh, in the cultural arena, I'm gonna cite The Wasteland again, which is just a profoundly fragmented work of literature. Um, Postmodern forms um, have a similar disjunctive quality um, and they're not working to hide their fragmentation. And that's where, again, you could argue that they're embracing it. One of the most popular examples of this is hip hop music, right, with sampling and the just indifference to trying to seamlessly weave together different sort of musical moments or musical impulses, instead just showing those, um, those junctures really visibly or audibly in the music, um, you know, and, and just sort of accepting that dissonance um is part of that kind of aesthetic you also see it in postmodern architecture where you'll have multiple traditions of architecture put together in ways that aren't a, an attempt to assimilate everything into some gestalt it's actually that's a classical <laughs> element over there and that's a rustic element right there and those two things are right in your face in the architecture and it's unapologetically pulling those two things together and not trying to create some kind of overall um, unity out of it. As far as the political question, uh, again, that's a huge element of postmodernism. And I guess I would just say, um, on the one hand, postmodern theorists are very, very uh, wary of mass political movement uh, historically, although most of the postmodern theorists did originally um, take some of their inspiration from Marxism. Um, they also tended to take a lot of their inspiration from Nietzsche, who is much more of a, um, uh, you know, anti, uh, sort of a, a thinker who is not subscribing easily to some simple pol political position. Um, ultimately, most postmodern thinkers are are writing and speaking in the interests of large ideas about uh, justice, and that is a paradox in their work. So they tend to be politically left of center and arguing against a sort of certain systematic systematic forms of oppression at the same time that they are disavowing 
large systems of political thought, including modernity. And in fact, if you'll bear with me for one second, there's postmodernism and modernism, which tend to be the terms of art with respect to culture. And then there's postmodernity and modernity, which tend to be the social systems that are at work. And postmodernity is actually a disavowal of modernity uh, and modernity, including a lot of the different thinking um, that happened during the Enlightenment and a lot of the ideas about the human that were produced during the Enlightenment. Um, and we can keep opening that can of worms as we Okay, well, I'm sure we'll return to that can of worms. Yeah. So um, moving on to the, 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 the third uh, opinion here is decanonization. So Hassan said um, that this is an important part of, of postmodernism, right? So this is something that I think has seeped pretty well into popular culture. People are familiar with phrases like dead white men and this notion of what a canonical work of literature is or is not, or you know, whether the canon should be opened up or closed or torpedoed entirely. So is getting rid of Shakespeare and Keats and so on what decanonization means or not? Yeah, that's definitely part of it. Um, you know, the idea that there are the canon as a sort of concept in relationship to a set universally recognized body of masterpieces is part of what he's talking about, getting rid of that idea. Um, but he's also talking about getting rid of all the other systems of power and hierarchies that determine human experience. I mean, these are really radical. Postmodern theory tends to be very radical in its resistance to conventional social organization. and. So decanonization is also about um, undermining the assumptions about who gets to produce knowledge broadly, not just in literature classrooms. Um, and lots of different power structures are getting um, toppled in the in the in the philosophy of postmodernism. So he goes on to talk about selflessness. And so the decanonization, I feel as if I understand, that is something familiar to me, but the selflessness and depthlessness uh, is very mysterious to me. He says that postmodernism vacates the traditional self. So what the heck is the traditional self and, and where did it go? Ah, yes, the traditional self. Well, he's really talking about humanism there as a kind of expression of enlightenment thought and this idea, which gets talked about in some other really contemporary work and also older work as sort of the rounded character in literature, um, a personality in literature that has depth and interiority um, in postmodern fiction is replaced by a kind of surfacey, almost comic book-like character and Honestly, it seems like Hassan is really thinking of uh, Thomas Pynchon here, uh, who has tons of characters in his work that are sort of absurdly named and their names signal like Stanley Kotex or Oedipus Oedipa, Oedipa Mask 
right? They're these characters that you're meant to see not as fully realized people as much as personifications of ideas, um, you know, sort of satirical figures. And the idea there, though, is really complicated. You know, for Pynchon, these characters are in some ways the product of this highly commercial post-1945 world that he's writing about. They're, they've been vacated of personality by lots of different large social forces, um, especially in some of Pynchon's work, um, sort of American ideology and, and capitalism. And more generally, though, uh, Hassan is talking about uh, a kind of character that doesn't have a unified soul or uh, essence in the way that older humanism would suggest that we humans have, right? There's uh, another idea that we're going to come to in a minute of social constructionism, that characters are products of their environment. Humans are products of their environment in a lot of this um, thought. And they're not, that, that the idea that there is an eternal Mike Malloy who was born Mike Malloy and has some essential identity that will always make him Mike Malloy is a fiction uh, in postmodern thought. Um, instead, the Mike Malloy that I'm talking to is the Mike Malloy who's the program coordinator of um, the English department. But there's also a Mike Malloy who is in his domestic setting, a father um, or a son or a friend. And those Mike Malloys are not actually the same Mike Malloy as the program coordinator Mike Malloy. That the idea that there's a single human being that is um, unified is a fiction. Um, and a lot of this contemporary uh, postmodern work gestures toward that, right? That's part of this idea of depersonalization de or, or selflessness. I'll just add that in some really recent work, um, Rachel Greenwald Smith, for example, has a book about contemporary literature and affect, and she compares a character um, or characters out of a book like Jonathan Franzen's The Corrections and sees those characters as having this kind of interiority or roundedness that is this kind of traditional model, um, possibly partly built out of kind of realist tradition. And then she talks about Karen K. Yamashita's um, work like a Tropic of Orange, which has many more postmodern characteristics. And she argues that those characters have this kind of flatness, and she's arguing for the flatness as an important modeling of the kind of affect that is um, produced under kind of current, current like neoliberal capitalist tradition. So that's an example, I will say, a debate that we haven't even touched on is whether there is still postmodern aesthetic being produced or if we're already out of the postmodern era. Some people argue that the postmodern period was like 1945 to 2000, roughly, and that now postmodernism has been replaced by something like postmarxism or neoliberal theory as the dominant way of understanding our culture. Um, people like Rachel Greenwald Smith's work is kind of bringing together the ideas from postmodernism and from those more re very recent economic theories. And I, again, 
there's not necessarily a clear break between the postmodernism and the postmarxism, um, but there's there's tension between them. So the the flat character thing you mentioned really made me think of something that I think a lot of listeners might be familiar with because it was made into a movie, which is American Psycho. And like the whole Brad Easton Ellis, his characters are always so flat in yeah. these serious ways. Um, and I, I, I brought him up as well, partly to segue to the next thing, which is the unpresentable. So uh, that book and that movie also has plenty of that. So Hassan talks about trying to present the unpresentable. And I was not necessarily clear in my head are we talking about literally unpresentable, like in an H.P. Lovecraft story at the end where he says, I can't describe the monster because it made me insane? Or is he talking, is Hassan speaking more about things that it's not proper to talk about in polite company, like poopy, pee-pee, farts, that sort of thing? A little of both in the sense that, um, you know, you're not wrong to, to sense that abject kind of content like poo-poo and pee-pee are probably part of his thinking, but he's more talking about the former, this idea that there are some things outside the range of human cognition or human expression. Um, and this has often been characterized as the postmodern sublime. And that's very kind of um, strategically termed because in the kind of Kantian tradition, the sublime actually is the experience of the mind's mind confronting something that's apparently inconceivably horrible and yet registering it. That's the sublime for Kant is that cognitive uh, confrontation. The postmodern sublime is kind of ditching that cognitive moment of triumph and just saying, no, there are some things that are just too big, too out there for the human brain to, to kind of grok. And, uh, well, it's like sublime, but we can't, we can't handle it. Yeah, not only can we not handle it, we can't represent it. And that's why you have things like, um, uh, you know, in some fiction about 9-11, just blank pages right? You turn the page and there's just blank. Uh, that also was a, a, a fairly common technique among postmodern poets where they would just have breaks uh, in, in their poetry where there's nothing. And the nothingness on the page is meant to register the things that cannot be spoken, right? Not because they're necessarily impolite, um, but because they are Uncertain, for example, circle back to that earlier term, right? There's no way of putting them into language. And, and this, I think, is, is one of those things that seems to annoy people about postmodernism. And I, I'm thinking in particular of, of the visual and maybe musical arts, where someone puts forward a, a musical composition that's just silence, or there's a, a painting that is a white canvas. That irks people. Yeah, and that's another issue, right? Because some people would claim, and, and Fred ja Frederick Jameson, who's one of the most brilliant writers on postmodernism, um, has a very famous book called Postmodernism or the Logic of Late Capitalism. You know, there are moments in his book where he seems to sort of treat postmodernism as a mass cultural form. Um, you know, he writes a lot about Andy Warhol and... A postmodern architecture, which is, you know, 
present in big cities like LA and people don't really give it a second thought. Um, and so there's one school of thought that would say part of this sort of in, in, inclusiveness of postmodernism versus this, you know, versus like kind of elitism of modernist art is that it is a form that people can get very comfortable with. Another example would be the graphic novel, right? Which is often considered a postmodern form and people feel very welcomed by often, right? But on the other hand, um, you could say that some of this material is extremely difficult and in its refusal of a lot of traditions of genre and um, form, it is incomprehensible. Um, and that's not wrong either. And I think, you know, like, I think you're thinking of work by John Cage, for example, who is understood as a postmodern composer and, uh, you know, work like his is often held up by critics of postmodernism as part of the problem with postmodernism, um, that it, that it's too intellectual. Um, and also just that in, in resisting grand narratives and embracing uncertainty at a certain point, it's simply embracing chaos um, and anarchy. And that can be, um, that can be off-putting. I think this kind of moves us on to irony, which is point number six. So this is one of those words that I think has turned into something other than what it once may have been. So in popular usage, it seems like it usually kind of means some kind of verbal game, sarcasm, something like that. But when Hassan talks about irony, it seems like there's a lot more to it than that. Right. So, I mean, in the simplest sense, irony often simply means saying the opposite of what you mean. Um, and, you know, if I stub my toe and I say, oh, great, I'm being ironic, right? So it's, there's one variant, there's a lot of different meanings to iron, irony, but in one sense, it's simply, um, you know, in its simplest uh, verbal form, it can be like sarcasm. Um, in literary form, it can be things like unreliable narrators, right? Um, part of what Hassan is alluding to in his discussion of irony is uh, something called blank irony that Frederick Jameson talks about. And in a nutshell, it's a form of irony that people aren't really sure is irony because irony depends on everybody agreeing on what the meaning should be, right? So. Um, everybody should agree that stubbing your toe isn't great, right? And since you determine, you can understand the irony of saying, oh, great. But in a world where there are no certainties and not everybody agrees on anything, irony becomes much more complicated and tricky. Um, and it's harder to identify in a work often. Like you're not even sure in a lot of contemporary, when you're watching a lot of contemporary television, you're not sure if your uh, voiceover is being ironic or not, right? Because you don't know how they actually feel about a whole set of issues. And you're not sure uh, whether what these characters' moral standards are or the, what their values are, what their beliefs are. And that can be very destabilizing to the idea of irony. Um, you don't know what their intention is um, when they're speaking anymore. So um, to a certain degree, Again, Hassan is, is registering a shift from an older idea of irony where everyone agreed on a truth, 
against which the irony was, was re, you know, reacting to a contemporary moment where your irony may be utterly lost on someone else because they don't believe what you believe. And so they think you're just being straight with them, right? Uh, and that can play out in all kinds of different forms, right? And get people into a lot of trouble, as it often does. It reminds me of a moment on The Simpsons when um, one character says like, oh, that's a great movie. And the other, they're t teenagers. And the other one says, dude, are you being sarcastic? And he says, I don't even know anymore. <laughs> there you have it. I mean, I would say just always defer to The Simpsons. It, yes. If it's out, The Simpsons will give you the right, the right answer. Uh, it'll give you not the right answer, but the postmodern answer. Yes. So the next point is hybridization. And this seems like a place where postmodernism and pop culture really have found a happy match, right? So we live in this very hybridized pop culture world. You mentioned, you know, hip hop and there are mashups, there is sampling. We have, you know, multiversal Spider-Man, we have Detective Pikachu's. Are we in a totally hybrid postmodern world now? Yeah, it seems that way. Um, you know, globalization really accelerated that process. Um, and I'm not sure I have too much to offer. You've done a great job of covering some of the most uh, visible instances of hybridization. Uh, again, I just go back to the idea that it's often not attempting to come to some kind of um, synthesis between these different forms. Their, their differences are on display and are simply, um, you know, taken for, taken for granted. And that, that's something that has really become, and I mentioned the, the Into the Spider-Verse thing because even in that movie, they don't try to make the different art styles match in a way. It's content to be eclectic. Right, and eclectic is a very popular term in the arts for things that are postmodern. We'll maybe do one more because I know you have to move soon and then we might do a part two to wrap this up. So very appropriately, this is a, um, you know, fragmented interview. Yeah. So the next one is carnivalization. And this makes me think of some kind of medieval carnival thing where the nobles are working in the shed and, you know, all that type of thing. But so Hassan has this phrase that, I found very interesting, but could not make heads or tails of. So I'll, I'll throw it to you for clarification. What is the peculiar logic of the inside out? Well, another definition of the carnivalesque is things being turned on their head um, and things being uh, basically tumbled around is part of the idea of postmodern uh, carnivalesque. The, again, I feel like Hassan who was writing this essay in the 80s, uh, is again using Thomas Pynchon to some degree, but also maybe Anthony Burgess as an inspiration um, for this, this part of his analysis of postmodern literature. These narratives where characters get involved in absurd, almost theatrical scenes where um, there's no, social order left in what they're doing you know uh, another example would be kurt vonnegut right these writers love presenting scenes of kind of vaguely humorous chaos they also tended to be inspired partly by the 60s 
in these in these scenes um you know a kind of sense that the usual social conventions are no longer operative um and wild behavior of all sorts is on display um whether it's sort of sexual or class uh disorganization right where conventional hierarchies of class are being violated and so carnivalesque is a very old concept um but it does have a, a whole kind of new energy and a lot of this um both postmodern film and postmodern um fiction uh revels in the carnivalesque i guess i would say and and is celebrating it as a form of freedom right where conventional order is is undermined in favor of the the sort of ludic and the and the crazy um, and and postmodernists are all for the crazy sounds both um appealing and unappealing at the same time yeah well again you get to sort of pick your pleasure when you're reading this material um you know this is not for everybody this 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 uh this stuff is not to everyone's taste and uh and these scenes can be um you know clarifying i guess for readers in terms of whether they're comfortable with what postmodernism is celebrating or not so hassan writes that the postmodern text quote wants to be written revised answered acted out so i think this is something we kind of get these days between the internet and the way it intersects with particularly television. Um, but I wanted to ask about Hassan thinks that the performing self could veer towards solipsism or narcissism. So what's, what's that all about? I mean, the underlying concept there is that postmodern art is so open-ended that the consumer of it, the audience of it is actually helping to construct it, right? They're, they're, as active a player in its um, existence as the author, uh, because it's so indeterminate. The, the reader, for example, of postmodern uh, literature is, is uh, themselves bringing content to it uh, through their interpretive act. And predictably, the danger of that <laughs> is that everyone sees in it what they want to see um you know that some effort at conveying a, a specific experience that might be other could be sacrificed if each reader is simply importing their own views right and imposing them and you know that's acute as a problem with postmodern literature that attempts to be political but if it's so open-ended and irresolute that it allows you to have a totally different interpretation, um, then that political meaning is lost. So you get into that thing that sometimes happens where it feels as if everybody has their own opinion and everybody's opinion is somehow equally valid because it's different. Absolutely, which you could say is perfectly justified and is very much a kind of postmodern, um, you know, a sort of sought outcome in some ways within postmodern thinking. And yet, again, in, in cases where there's an overlap between political uh sort of undertaking in postmodern thought that's where you can start to get into into real difficulty okay so let's get on to constructionism which um i will say kind of threw me a bit so is Hassan here suggesting and we're getting into the almost mystical ones now 
Is he suggesting the world is not real and we make it up with our language, with our ideas? It's more like it's not knowable. I mean, and this is a part of postmodernism that's really been borrowed from post-structuralist theory, this idea that um, everything we experience is mediated through language and language itself is a product of all kinds of discursive um, layers that are largely institutionally created and that as a, as a result, whatever we actually experience is not some objective um, material reality. It's a byproduct of all kinds of forces that affect our cognition. Um, and the result, again, is, is, you know, my experience of Zoom as a <laughs> platform and your experience of Zoom as a platform are social constructs. There is no real experience of Zoom as a platform that can be, uh, you know, universally arrived at. Um, so it's, that would be, you know, again, one of the reasons that postmodernism was, um, uh, loathed by science, a lot of science um, uh, kind of departments and individual scientists is precisely that aversion to seeding uh, the idea that even in the scientific realm, there is simply a reality that you can arrive at through the you know empirical techniques and investigation, and and. Hardcore postmodernists really do resist that. They say that the questions uh, that drive science are constructed, right? That the very foundational activities are informed by politics and, you know, perspectives that are con constructs and that drives the whole enterprise. Plus also that whatever uh, interpretive actions take place within science are shaped by uh, these kind of political and ideological forces, so that at every level, you know, postmodern theorists would even take something as um, material as scientific investigation and question it. So I think that that might tie into the next one, which is imminence. So Hassan says that when he uses imminence, he uses it to refer to the growing capacity of the mind to generalize itself through symbols. And he says that we're turning nature into culture. And that feels pretty abstract. So are there examples of this that are more concrete? And how does turning nature into culture impact our sense of ourselves in the universe around us? Yeah, he's talking about the new sphere. Um, he's thinking of the degree to which individual minds are absorbing and processing the world to the degree that there is nothing transcendental, right? He's, his use of the term imminence there is in some part as an alternative or as the opposite of transcendent meaning, which would be conceptual, universal, outside the individual experience. Right, um, only on any one person. Exactly. Yeah. Imminence. In, and that's it's a complicated term, but he's generally meaning it here in terms of the local experience as again the only one we can know, right? That that and that you know these these giant notions that there are these um, master narratives, including nature, 
outside of our own individual experience are what the postmodern thinkers in general push, push against. And again, as, as we've said throughout this conversation, there's a lot of overlap between these concepts. It's obviously closely related to the ideas of constructionism and performance. Um, and he's just, he's able to sort of tease out distinctions to try to show us all the different facets of this, of this set of ideas, but they're, they are closely related. Yeah, you can see how they intersect with each other to form this, this whole that's greater than the sum of its parts. So last question. So it seems like a lot of these ideas, you know, this is ostensibly an English department podcast, and it seems like we've kind of stumbled into philosophy, politics, theology, um, borderline mysticism. You know, what does postmodernism have to do specifically with just literature? Well, it was certainly very important uh, in terms of a period of time when these ideas were really very visible and visceral in a lot of um, major writers' work, and including, again, people like Don DeLillo or Toni Morrison or Tim O'Brien, famous writer about the Vietnam War. Uh, another event, incidentally, historically, that helped to try to sort of drive home a lot of these theories about there not being a single truth that we could all agree on. Um, so on the one hand, they're very helpful in helping us kind of um, diagnose or dissect certain works as particularly reflective of this set of larger kind of international or almost global philosophical um, impulses. Uh, and they also become really helpful in wrestling with certain kind of frustrations sometimes students have with indeterminate literature, for example, helping to explore what motivates a writer to leave things uh, unresolved. And again, I keep calling on Toni Morrison, but she is an extremely well-known writer who's very much influenced by these ideas and also shaped them. And, you know, if I'm teaching a narrative like Sula, by Toni Morrison, there are, there are episodes in that novel that are simply impossible <laughs> to, um, to interpret in some absolute way. In some, you know, there's, there's a profound level of indeterminacy in, in many scenes in that book. And to be able to talk to students about what motivates Morrison to leave them so open-ended. And, and she is a writer who has said she wants her readers to be equal writers of her fiction. Um, she wants them to be equal participants in its construction. Um, you know, you can understand that's an empowering position for readers to occupy. And in the end, uh, many of the writers most invested in this are trying to escape this transcendental category of the author who gets to create all the meaning, who has the absolute authority, um, and instead, you know, uh, share the power with a reader, which itself is a really political act. Um, again, I think you see in, in, in Toni Morrison's work some of the risks of that also, because she has certain agendas around racial justice, for example, and sometimes the indeterminacy of her work um, complicates a simple interpretation of key moments. Uh, it, it's not didactic literature in the sense that it's simply guiding you toward a uh, clear understanding of the cost of racial, racial justice or injustice, rather, in every case. Uh, sometimes episodes happen 
which another writer might treat very didactically to just lead the reader to understand, okay, here is what um, happens when someone is, you know, treated um, unfairly because of race. And here's the violence that befalls them. And, and in many cases, she doesn't spell that out for readers. Uh, quite the opposite, opposite sometimes. And you could say, well, you know, that's at the risk of readers misinterpreting this scene and not gathering the actual um, causality, not, not understanding the causality. But she is a sophisticated enough writer that she's willing to take that chance to do something to get the readers to invest in the material at a deeper level, uh, to force them to go a little bit deeper into themselves and ask hard questions rather than simply come to predetermined uh, conclusions. And I mean, for someone like Morrison, or again, a, a, a number of really powerful and influential writers, they're, they're asking readers to engage at that level. So it's, um, it's empowering, but there's a certain degree of risk that comes from empowering a reader to contribute to the, the literature themselves. Right. All, you know, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's impossible. I'll just say it's impossible to simply count on your readers to conform to your beliefs if you are opening the door for them to think for themselves. and. Um, and ideally, literature gives us that incredible um, cognitive challenge. At least some great literature does that. Um, but, you know, all bets are off. That's the phrase I'm looking for, right? In terms of whether you're, in the end, uh, going to have changed in your thinking in the way that maybe a writer might have, have wished on some political level. And again, that just also gets to the complex relationship within postmodernism between art and politics not a simple equation and and the kind of politics that postmodernism is derived from is really not a kind of conventional enlightenment driven uh, politics of liberal thought right where we can all kind of come together around certain truths and and have a, a sort of clear um solidarity around them. It's much more diffuse. It's much more complex. Okay. Well, thank you very much, uh, Professor Hicks, for talking with me today and the other day about postmodernism. My pleasure.